So uh, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Eric. Um, I currently live in Colorado, and I have lived many lives. <laughs> What's your current uh, life right now? My current life is nice. Uh, I like being home. I like doing the work I'm doing, and uh, it's a nice change from my otherwise future-oriented mindset and lifestyle, let's say. So you're spending a lot of time being present and are you building something specifically or is it the improv or are you doing improv? Uh, I teach improv um, mm-hmm. regularly, mindful improv, which is just good for fun. But we also do it uh, at the house that I live in, which is fun. Mm-hmm. And I am still a designer developer on this platform that I built since leaving the tech world many oh. years ago. Oh. Cool. And mindful improv, what, what is that? Uh, mindful improv is improv for personal growth rather than performance. When most people think of improv, they think of it as a performance. They get scared. They say, I can't do that. I'm not quick to come up with jokes. I don't like performing in front of people. And actually, the term improv has nothing to do with performance. It's just about improvising, which means to make use of what's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So when I say mindful improv, I usually get people asking, oh, what's that? Which is great. And then I explain it's about becoming aware of how you respond to social situations. And since we are social by design, becoming aware of those things can really help you to become a greater person. Let's say. That's really interesting. Uh, so what's an example of an exercise that you guys do? So one thing to do at the beginning of a class is uh, you get in a group. I like to use around 10 people or so and we play the name game. The name game, you go around the circle and you say your name and a word that describes you that starts with the same sound or letter. Mm. So being that I'm Eric, I would be exactly Eric or enthusiastic Eric or, you know, ecstatic Eric, you know. You might be sleepy Stuart or stupendous Stuart and you have to accompany your word uh, and name with some kind of gesture. Move your body, move your face. And then everybody else in the group has to follow you. Hmm. You go around the circle, everybody does it, you go through everybody's name, and then you start sending it around by saying somebody else's name and gesture, and then they say somebody else's. Hmm. And you end up learning everybody's name very well because you attribute it to the entirety of their communication, their physical stance, their facial expression, the tone of their voice, you know what I mean? There's many more things. Hmm. Um, And it's a good way to just get get into it. Um, and you mentioned that uh, people connotate in- improv with performance and a lot of people say that they don't want to do it. Do you ever get people like that coming to your class? Um, and uh, has anybody reacted? Is it, have you, how do you deal with beginners who have large blocks against improv- improvisation? Well, the beginning couple of exercises that I do are group oriented, like the one I just described. And the purpose is A, to just get people comfortable with the space, but also for me to understand where everybody's at. So I can tell based on how they do the exercise where their blocks might be. Some of them may have trouble listening. They really just can't listen. Um, Some of them might actually have trouble stepping into a character, which is the opposite kind and everywhere in between. So generally depending on the way that the group is divided or whatever, I will shift the games and the exercises towards certain things. Cool. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, I just tried a salsa class uh, last night. I've been going to salsa for the past couple months um, and I've I've been noticing how uh, 
in the beginning, I was just, I was a beginner at it. And like when you're a beginner at anything, there's so much new stimuli and there's so much kind of new things coming into you that you, that you kind of only focus on just trying to survive basically. Um, and then, uh, and then, so now I've been going to classes a couple of times, but I'm going to a beginner class. Um, and so I've started to improve now and I can start to see more layers to it, um, and see the, the kind of like, uh, uh, particular like getting into the style and dancing and stepping in the right way and everything like that but I'm dancing with beginners and they're still at that initial level and it's really interesting to see uh just how in these states of anxiety or new, new beginner type of stuff uh some of the stuff that comes out of people's mouths and stuff like that um and uh and uh yeah yesterday was really interesting it's just yeah it was just I, I don't know do you have any what do you think about that kind of beginner state of learning a new skill? Um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I, I feel like I'm very particular with styles of teaching. I understand everybody's, everybody's different, and so that's fine. Huh. But, uh, oh, did you freeze near there? Um, uh, so for me, especially when it comes to stuff like this, like improv or dance, maybe, I'd like to take a dance class. Huh. Um, I find it's best to focus on one core emotional thing because that thing usually has branches and leaves in a variety of different areas. Usually what teachers will come at you with like, you got to do it this way with this thing and this other thing. And they list out like 10 things or 20 things. And yeah. Who says there's 20? Who says there's 10? There's definitely one huh. at the bottom of it. So um, I, like to, I like to get people just to focus on their um, emotional experience. Experience, whether they're feeling fearful, whether they're feeling excited, one of those two. Because if they're excited, then they step into it. Then it's like, okay, well, at least you brought your energy. Now it's just like a matter of structuring it correctly. But if you're fearful, cool, that's cool as well. You can be you know, uh, afraid. And why? Why are you afraid? What is it? Oh, okay, cool. You know, either way, at least you're learning, but you're focusing on one thing. Because you know? the idea is with mindful improv is that it's not something that people do as a practice. It's just something, it's just the way to live. It's the way to interact with the world. Yep. It's how to have a clear communication with yourself, with other people. In the same way that so many meditators would say, like, it's not about just always sitting and it's anytime walking meditation. You're mm -hmm. just like in that state all the time. Yeah. Right? And bringing, bringing the practice into your daily life is way more valuable than having a strict formal practice of an hour a day. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's been the, one of the hardest steps for me the last couple weeks uh yeah just the last couple of days i mean uh i've had such so many horrible car issues and then and then like bringing and like just allowing those experiences to kind of pass through me to be angry because it's it's there there is frustration and everything like that but then not just not let the experiences kind of settle in my being and cause friction uh in my own being just kind of like let them pass through me yeah totally yeah let them like waves. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Although I will say, you know, part of part of being able to do that, of course, is the mindset that, that can be developed. But a lot of it also has to do with the actual environment you're in. Mm. I've been doing like disciplined, mindful practices now for five years. Mm. And I've taken notes the entire way through. Uh -huh. And no matter how much I may grow, uh, there are still certain environments that are very triggering. And that's sort of the nature of the beast. And and frankly, if I had not left San Francisco, there's no way I would be this person now. Uh, so, you know. Yeah. 
and what what are what are your practices uh, like on a day to day basis? What what is the main like method or technique, or if you have a technique? Um, I think um, I just am very. I've just become very mindful of the way that I'm moving about the world and mm -hmm. like what's being said to me, what I'm saying, how people are responding, how I'm behaving. I mean, I don't know. I it's almost like I've taken all of the otherwise the mental energy that I otherwise would have spent on learning about something like some kind of craft and uh -huh. I've just put it into my actual day-to-day -day experience. Uh -huh. um, but do you have a formal sitting practice where you sit and you pay attention to the breath or anything like that? No. Uh -huh. That's at all times. Uh -huh. <laughs> at all times. Your, your practice is specifically totally informal and you, and you try to bring it into your everyday life. Um, Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, um, well, I have a particularly interesting story, I suppose, of, of, of this. And it's very interesting to listen to people talk about meditation and mindfulness and like silent meditation retreats and all this stuff. And they, they will often proselytize to uh, me. Eric, yeah. you need to do this. Oh, you'd love it. This is the thing you need to do. Uh, from my perspective, I feel I'm already doing it. Like, what else is there? You know what I mean? I, I got it. I'm doing it. Yeah. Trying to do it at all times. Yeah. So I often wonder where people are at, where they're not at. I wish I knew. Uh -huh. I mean, it'd be so great if we could just go up to one another and say, okay, you know something I don't know. I know something you don't know. Let's figure out what they are. Uh -huh. And this looks a totally worthwhile interaction. <laughs> And that's really interesting. Before about two or three years ago, I probably would have proselytized you and 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 said how valuable it is to have a formal meditation practice where you sit every day and, and pay attention to the breath. I do I do I, I do still find value in that. But um, I have had a lot of experiences and I've started to learn that the technique itself, having a formal practice, or ha can be a barrier um, because. Any technique that can get you there, um, you start to use that technique and say there's value in the technique itself. But the technique is only a finger pointing to the moon itself, as as opposed to the moon. Um, and yeah, and that's culture for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Culture and doctrine and all that stuff is all fingers pointing, and yeah. then people say that that's the way it has to be done. I have some friends like that, and I just can't stand it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have you read Krishnamurti? Or? I have. Yeah, that was a good recommendation. Uh -huh. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the, the last couple of months. It's become very clear to me that that's that um, that this whole process that we have in our brains in order to protect ourselves and in order to uh, deal with others, I guess, uh, is, is uh, starts to create fictions for ourselves that then we then solidify into tradition um yes and for sure yeah it becomes the belief mm -hmm. well it's really it's 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 funny because you know okay so you're born right and you have the capacity for consciousness and mm -hmm. that's cool but how do you learn and how does the consciousness grow it is going to be via your communication with the world around you namely your family your parents your siblings your your friends and all those things will combine to ultimately give you a sense of self you know, I and me. But much of that has been put on you by those people. Oh, you look so cute in these clothes. Are you like this, don't you? What are you going to be when you grow up? And you like this, but not that. So by the time you like finally get to a point 
where hopefully that's in your 20s, if not before, where you're like, oh my God, I'm awake. I'm a person now. I have been created by these people. You should make a shift and say, okay, thank you for that. Now I will go off on my own. But that does not happen. You would never go off on your own because people are constantly throwing stuff at you. So it's very confusing because it's very hard to separate out those voices in your head, which of them are really yours, and, or are any of them yours at all? Mm-hmm. And so I can see the value of you know, daily practices on a regular basis if you have a regular life where you're working nine to five every day. Mm-hmm. That is just not the way that my energy flows. I'm a very hard worker. I went to a good school. I got good jobs. I'm not an idiot, <laughs> but I'm much better suited for a much more flowy kind of lifestyle because some nights I'll program you know, 24 hours a day without eating. Uh. And other days I'll just be sitting out on the deck in the sun like a cat and it's really great it's a nice balance for me Uh, Um, but if I am forced into the structure of you must be on for these hours and off on the other ones I don't know yeah and the 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 the, I I definitely um, uh, find a lot of value in what you just said and I'm having difficulty right now because I've started to realize that there's time periods in my life where I'm productive and effective and everything like that. And then there's friction where, where I drop back into this kind of, you know, state of reactivity and everything like that. And I don't get the things that I want to get done. And I've, you know, I want, I watch TV as opposed to, to doing other things that I should be doing. And, uh, those times I, then the judgmental voice comes in and says, Oh, you shouldn't be doing this. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta produce, create, you know? Um, but those, periods of rest are important um even if they're not effective um uh, when they maybe they are effective uh but yeah do you ever deal with that how do you do how do you deal with that i have plenty of times that are just down times yeah um and then there are other times that are very creative times and they really do play together nicely i remember making a note to myself several years ago mm-hmm. as i was like coming into understanding how i operate and i was like take note sometimes it's off sometimes it's on that's how it goes that's always how it will be um but you know the times when it's off you know we we work 40 hours a week or more i mean i know a lot of people our age are like startup folks and they're just like we work so hard we work so much and it just seems stupid like who needs to work that much you can't be if you're doing it right and you're doing it smart you don't need to do that much i mean most mm-hmm. stuff, most work is busy work. Mm-hmm. Most conversation is bullshit. Mm-hmm. The number of words that actually matter, the number of people that actually matter, and the number of work tasks that actually matter are small. And honestly, the biggest thing to learn is how to prioritize those things. Like if you're going to spend time on a problem, whether it's a mental problem or like a work problem, like you better damn well be sure that that's worth spending all that time on and that it's not something else. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times it would frustrate me in my jobs where even on, even on a company-wide scale, or, or you know, team-wide, company-wide, they'd say, we're gonna go in this direction, and there's all these details that need to be worked out. Ultimately, it doesn't even work out the project. Sometimes it gets killed later on, because other things you know, that were not clear before suddenly become clear. And I'm very much a fan of, well, let's figure it out first, really quickly, let's just, let's just dive in, let's be real honest with ourselves, and. and assess whether it's worth the, the time. But, you know, people spend their time working for other people, and so they just have to do what they're told. And like, who knows? <laughs> what can come of that? Yeah. Damn. I mean, I got some friends who, you know, after a week of work doing marketing, which they 
supposedly like are just like drained and it's stressful. And yep. I'm like, well, I thought it's supposed to be fun. I don't understand. Hmm. Do you ever get drained by mindful by the by doing mindful improv? No, never. It's great. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because what because the whole point of it is it's teaching people how to share energy. Uh, uh, and in the working world in particular, everybody's grabbing energy from right. each other. Mm. Um, for their own sake, because they're under pressure. Yeah. Like they're working for somebody and that buys that person's under pressure. And so it's a lot of energy stealing going on mm. and people feel unappreciated or they feel stressed out. And it's because they're giving their energy to work, even if they don't even have any to begin with. And it's getting mm. taken from them mm. and they're getting money in return, which doesn't even feel like anything because then you go home and you're totally drained and you just like watch TV, which doesn't help you anyway. Mm. But the whole nice thing about the improv thing and why it's very, very popular within corporate structures, by the way, that's like the main business for the mm. improv. Um, is because it teaches you how to be nice to each other and share energy and make people feel like you actually hear them. And actually, if people are doing it right, it feels really good because you don't have to bring anything. It's just mm. like, here's all the mm. energy. Mm. You're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Red Bull. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds really nice. Yeah. Um, so we change topics a little bit here. Uh, uh, we, we both discussed earlier about how uh, marijuana has helped in your meditation pro- pro- process and helped in, in my meditation process. How, what, is, what are the benefits that marijuana offers to you? Um, I think your friend said it well on your last podcast, said it does definitely help with well, for me, it helps with attention. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> and it also increases my sensitivity yeah. mm-hmm. in a very great way. So it's like, uh, you know, having sunglasses on during the day or something in life, and then you like take them off and it's like, oh God, there's so much more light coming in. Mm-hmm. But also because of the power of attention, not only am I more sensitive, but I'm able to see a lot more and my problem solving skills go through the roof. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Mm-hmm. I often wonder, you know, people talk about, you know, that they're running through their minds all the time. They got a lot of stuff cycling. And I've I've been, you know, I've been thinking, well, I do that too. I mean, I have a voice in my head. I talk to myself. But then I started asking about the nature of the voices that are coming in and what they're saying and and what's the train of thought. And I've heard that there, there usually isn't really much of a train of thought. There's just like just splashes of voices sort of again and again in different ways. And that's very different than what I have in my head. I am always problem solving. What's happening Mm. here? How does this go? Mm. People for years when I was a kid were always like, Eric, you got to stop overanalyzing or whatever, you know, and just be here. Mm. And I know what they're saying, you know, there's definitely a way to overanalyze and and be in your head and not be, you know, in the reality. But that's another value of the improv thing is it teaches you how to be a really good listener. So you really are, with the situation, you really are picking up on the correct things because you're not bringing your ego with you. And, you know, I'm a good, you know, I'm a good analyzer. Anybody who does know how to analyze in his or her head should be analyzing, Mm. but should also make sure they balance it with the reality. Mm. I get upset when people sort of, you know, say like, oh, don't overanalyze. I'm like, I'm just solving problems. That's an amazing thing that the brain is meant to do. Oh, yeah. I would say one of the main reasons why I'm living such a nice life is because of my problem solving skills. <laughs> so anyway, I digress. The, pipe, the, the weed definitely helps with that though. Uh-huh. Huh. And um, do you notice any drawbacks to using marijuana or? You know, I... I have to self-police over the years. Uh, I will always think, am I smoking too much? But then I have to look at my behavior, uh, my actual behavior. Like, what am I doing? 
you know, and generally it's not bad. It's any, if anything, it's just a self-conscious thing that comes in like my mother talking to me. Yep. And that's what I have to add this voice in my head that says, you know, that as we were talking about earlier, a lot of the voices that we have in our head are byproducts of the things that we've, we've learned from previous times. And one of those voices for me is, uh, oh yeah, you can't do that because that's the drug and it's bad. Um, but then, but then the more, the more research I do about it and about the science that we are actually coming out, coming out is that there's, there's a system in our body, just like the immune system, just like the cardiovascular system, it's called the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and it is one of the oldest systems in our body. Uh, and it reacts, we have an endogenous cannabinoid, which is called anandamide, um, which an Israeli researcher found. Uh, and it's the, the root of it is Ananda, uh, uh, which is unending bliss, uh, which is the type of bliss that you find in meditation once you've deconditioned your mind to the point where you can then experience reality. Um, and so he called this little molecule that our body produces naturally, um, and that's THC and CBD interact with in a particular way once you smoke them. So if you have a deficiency in your endocannabinoid system uh, and you smoke cannabis, it will do something to you. And it will... it for some people it's quite a wild run because uh, it, it causes paranoia and all of these other things. And for some people it brings them into the state that is, could be considered a natural state of, 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 um, of, uh, of, of existence. So it's, it's, it, and it, it also, especially with plant medicines, it becomes interesting because we, this idea that we are a separate self and that we are this, this uh, you know, I am Stuart and, and I am this here, here's the border, everything else is not me. That's silly, you know, it's like, because the food I eat, it changes the, the, my body. And, you have uh, new cells growing all the time. What? Yeah, you have new cells growing all the time. Yeah, new cells, yeah. The seven years ago, I had totally different um, cells in my body. And so that becomes very clear with plant medicine and food as well. Um, uh, uh, because all of a sudden I've smoked something which has now changed the way that I perceive reality. Um, and it's due to something that was supposedly outside of me, but now we're one and it's like, it's a very interesting, it's a relationship. And, um, and that brings me to a mindful improv and what I feel like it might help do is it helps people to be in relation with another. And that is where one of the most mindful things that where mindfulness is, is most apparent and most difficult in some ways. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's definitely all about relationships uh-huh. with yourself, but also with other people yeah. and both and how they pertain to one another. I mean, relationships, you can meditate all you want. You can do yoga all you want. doesn't make you a good partner at all. Uh-huh. doesn't make your communication any better. So uh-huh. like hearing all these things about, you know, new age, spirituality, meditation, yoga, you know, yoga with goats, whatever. And that's fine. Do whatever. But yeah. none of that has anything to do with how you will communicate. Mm. So I find the mindful improv to be the missing element that says, okay, well, if you can bring your presence and state of mind and you're stretched out and you're loose in your body and, you know, you feel calm, cool, mm. bring that as the baseline now and let's start using words and hand gestures and eyebrow raises. Mm. And let's remember that conversation is not real. It was invented by people. <laughs> These words are not real words. Mm. And if, we're, if we realize that, that we are choosing to speak, then we can be much more careful with our words, mm. um, both giving and receiving. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, but uh, yes, 
if I may speak to your point about the separate self mm. or that and the drug and uh, as a relationship of consuming. It is, it is very interesting. I, I've never felt like, I've never actually felt like a self. I remember in my childhood always feeling on the outside. I always described it that way. Nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. One day in school, second grade, I like begged my mom not to let me, not to make me go to school because I just couldn't stand being around other kids. Everybody was so loud and obnoxious and like, <laughs> I hated it. I'm really not that kind of person. So the problem there is that I just wanted to, I guess, go to school and get out of there. Um, but kids are mean, or if you like try to get something that you want, they can also be uh, easily competitive, whatever. And they will put on an identity onto you. Mm -hmm. You're stupid, you smell, you're girly, whatever it is, right? And they'll keep using it because kids are awesome like that. So you kind of have to, you kind of have to, for the sake of your survival, take on a take on a role and say, "I'm not that. I'm this." Mm. That's the nature of the first line of defense. They say, "You're this." I say, "No, I'm not that. I'm this. Mm. I'm not girly. I'm smart. You'll see. Mm. I'm not this. I'm creative." You know, mm. and it's your defense. So mm. you go with it for years and years and years. All the while, you're still developing your brain. Like 25. So by the time you get there, you completely forgot that you put this on. You needed to, to get along in the world. Um, and, you know, and, and you just keep getting validated. You go to a good school, you get a good job. You find a partner who mm. likes your ego, mm. <laughs> like the other person's ego. And so now you guys have to, have to keep the ego going. I mean, that's what you like about each other. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> that's why I think it's so hilarious when some couples, like one person will say like, oh my God, I... I always, I always loved how he's just like spontaneous. He just does whatever he wants, you know, but it's been a couple of years now and he just like really doesn't listen to me. And mm. I'm like, but that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's what you liked. Uh -huh. I would uh, pick a partner based uh, on, based on how he, you know, or she lives, lives uh, their life and goes about each moment, you know. And that's the important thing that a lot of the Buddhist traditions also bring up is that everything is, uh, is, is temporary so that the self that does get solidified does change over time as well. And so then, and then these people who have come I'm into sure. contact. I know, yeah. think about all your friends who have maybe spent most of their 20s in a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. By the end of it, like seven years later, either you get married or you break up. It's one mm -hmm. of those things. Mm -hmm. And if you get married, that's great. But now that's it. That, your life has been with this person and depending on his or her flexibility, Mm. Who knows w whether you can grow or not. And if you do grow, if you will be able to stay together, lots mm. of stuff. There. And if you break up, yeah, it's really sad because you just spent the last seven years growing with this person and you may have a lot of things to undo before your next healthy relationship. Mm. Who knows? But it's, it plays a real role because, you know, many humans, myself included, but not all of them are emotionally tied to other people. We have, we are influenced by other people in our lives, their energy, their approval, mm. the smile on their face, you know, mm. maybe, some, maybe some people in tech are not like this, but I certainly am. So, you know, you got to be real careful who the people are in your life because man, they got stuff and yeah. it's going to be you and off you go. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. About what you were saying earlier about how uh, we've got this, this sense of stuff that gets created. It reminded me. So I, from the time I was about eight years old until the time I was 19, I was pretty overweight, about 100 pounds overweight. So I weighed 300 pounds. Um, yeah. And so I created this sense of self that was like, oh, the funny fat kid uh, who, who 
you know, like was really nice to people and, and, and kind of, you know, a little bit of a loner. And then, uh, and then, um, all of a sudden I just, I actually, and it has something to do with marijuana as well. Uh, I started smoking and then my diet radically changed. Um, uh, Didn't you been eating more? <laughs> what's that? Yeah, well, that, that's, but that's the thing. I mean, that's a whole nother story is that I, that, that what the endocannabinoid system is also deeply related to gut, the gut, how well the gut works. Um, and so, uh, so I started craving a bunch of foods that I traditionally would have eaten. So soda, uh, candy, food, all this food. And then over time, the, the feedback loop with, with cannabis for me is very quick. So, it, so I would start to feel horrible after I had overeaten all these things. And then slowly my diet started to, I just started to crave other foods um, based on education and other things. It wasn't totally cannabis, but cannabis definitely played a part. Mm. Uh, and so within about nine months, I stopped drinking soda. That was the main thing that changed. Uh, nine months, uh, I, I lost like 100 pounds. Um, and then I was, and then people all of a sudden started treating me radically different based on my yeah. appearance. Yeah. And I was just like, wait, this is very, very confusing, particularly with women, um, particularly women, <laughs> with women I was interested in. Yes. Um, all of a sudden it was like women before that would kind of would pay, pay attention to me and we'd have conversations, but it was very not clearly not, uh, uh, anything going on, anything sexual. And then all of a sudden women came a little bit more, um, less interested in gay or it looked like they were less in, interested in engaging with me. Um, so it was a very, very difficult experience. And so now I've had to adapt to this way that other people are treating me, but I've still got this deep, you know, like kind of hurt that comes from, from my, the way that I was growing up and it affects my ability to, to, yeah. So it's, that's, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. I have the same thing, uh-huh. you know, short and thin uh-huh. and, uh, more feminine in my younger years uh-huh. now much more i suppose masculine but it's just so bizarre to me i like don't identify either way yeah um so if people do respond to me i'm just like i'm not sure what you're seeing mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure how to control what you're seeing now yeah. so i'm a little bit nervous but <laughs> uh, yeah. they're like oh eric you're so cool i'm like am i, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> what exactly is can you elaborate please yeah what part yeah, what part? And yeah. how exactly? Yeah. What are you bringing to the table? How's your child? Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, interesting. Um, so, so for your personal meditation practice or personal uh, uh, mindfulness practice, does the breath doesn't play much of a part? I know. I mean, breathing is really important. I'm prone to anxiety, mm-hmm. and obviously, anxiety is. They say it's excitement without the breath. And I can definitely hmm. concur that in much of my life, I have not been breathing. Hmm. So a couple of years ago, I decided to go on a four-month uh, thing. I went down to San Diego and I did nothing but meditate and do weightlifting and eating hmm. 3,000 calories a day. Hmm. <laughs> really hard. Um, and yoga and oh. sitting by the beach and... Um, I really learned how to breathe. Hmm. That was ultimately it. I gained 16 pounds of muscle, which was awesome, but also it like went away real quick as soon as I changed my diet. So I'm a thin person. Uh. But more importantly, most importantly, was being able to tap into a different way of breathing underneath the anxious breath. Anxious breath, Mm. shallow in your chest, (laughs) gets tired real quickly. Before you know it, you can't breathe. You think you're going to die, but that's not even the real breathing. There's like a deeper one underneath Mm. there that can withstand weights 
who can withstand, you know, big stretches from the yoga and holding the pose. Mm. I mean, if you do those poses and you get that breathing going, you can just hold it. Mm. You just, you just sit there. It doesn't feel like anything, mm. but you have to completely be locked in on the breathing. And I found it actually quite liberating because I had decided to do this when I was like tired of thinking and tired of trying to figure stuff out. And I was like, oh my God, I can just use all this energy and just be here now. That's great. Mm. So whether or not I continue to do it, um, I feel like it's irrelevant because I can recognize my own breathing patterns in situations mm. and I can know how to like just dial back in and it changes the perception of reality. If everything's a lot more, Oh, this is just here right now. Not like, Oh my God, all of this thing is going to, everything's going to break in. Mm. Mm. So you mentioned that you went to San Diego and it was kind of like a, you know, I don't, I don't want to say challenge, but you, you had a practice of, of, of breathing. Do you have any thing that you're working on right now? No, I'm done. You're done with everything. So you're just, you're, you're, I started my five, yeah, five years ago, 2013, I started. Uh-huh. I lived in a different city every six months. Uh, uh, each time I played a different version of me, uh, one yeah. who was putting on, let's say, the clothes of a more confident or mindful person in, a various, in various ways. And then the people that I would meet there would just respond to that version of me. Uh, and they would have no idea. Uh, and so gradually it allowed me to shift you know, with people, people yeah. who didn't know me and who could usher me in, you know, away from people who were keeping me in a box, let's say, mm. or not encouraging my growth is better. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so five years later, now I'm this person. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And it's a combination of all the, all the people. And that's, so I, I, I did a very similar thing. I, I, I started studying abroad in other countries. Um, and that allowed me to, yeah, just uh, kind of leave behind the, the skin, the identity that I had created based on these difficult experiences in, in, yep. in childhood and <clears throat> created a new one, went on adventures and, and found this confident person inside that could take on adventures and handle a lot of crazy things happening. Um, and that, cool. yeah. And then I, and then I came back and I'd live back in the States for a year and integrate and then go do it, do, do it again and come back. Uh, and the most difficult thing has now been coming home and like spending a lot more time with family because uh, then family is like just all of it comes back immediately. Like the, all of those, all of those selves that, that, that were, were created crumble and, and in the face of, of, of family dynamics. Oh yeah. You know, working with my family has been a big thing. Mm. Although I have to say, given some of the stories I've heard about people and their parents, mine are great. Oh. <laughs> Uh -huh. We're definitely all a lot better than we were, oh. so yeah. it it can happen. But, but yeah, I forget. Are we the same age? I'm thirty two. Yeah, I'm thirty two. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. that's cool. So you're in Boulder right now. Why? And are you, you're planning on staying there? What What about Boulder? Is that one of the cities that you visited in the five years? It is. Oh. Yeah. Um, it was. It was right near the beginning, actually. Oh. Um, it's just really nice. It reminds me of my high school days from Connecticut, where you can like, drive around, and it's like a small town. But it's not that small. Oh. You know, we've got everything that we need here. Denver's nearby. International Airport nearby. We got mountains. And it's even nice during the winter. I mean, today was 55 degrees. It's been like that. Other days, it snows. So the pace of life is slow. Hmm. which is great because I have a very fast mind and I can't be in a fast-paced life and a fast-paced mind. It's just too, it's too much. Hmm. I had this moment of Zen 
finally in, um, I think it was October, sitting in Union Square in New York City. New York's been in my home base pretty much since I started traveling. I'd like go around and then come back, go around and come back. And each time I thought I would be like better suited to handle New York because the first time was just like so crazy. I'm an emotional guy. I would see a pretty girl on the subway and I would just be like, oh my God, what is your life? Who are you? Mm. And then I realized you can't do that in New York. You can't care about anybody. Just your life. You have to, they're just yeah. wallpaper. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes me a terrible person. I don't want that. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I was sitting in the, I was sitting in the, in the park and the sun was going down and I was really, I was really calm. This was coming back from San Diego and everything. Really calm. Just breathing. Just like watching everybody move around and I was like man I'm like not even here when I'm here why am I here Mm. this is a city of human doings not human beings Mm. I'd like to go be Mm. and and does Boulder are a lot of other people there being or yeah yeah Yeah. everybody here is a lot of people from the east coast or from west coast yeah we just want to live a nice life So I think we've got maybe about five minutes left. Is there is there anything else like that you're working on really right now that you really want other people to know about or any cool thoughts that you're thinking about or what's the most important thing in your life? Yeah, where you choose to be who you, and who you're surrounded by makes a big difference. A, a wise friend of mine from my college days once told me that her mother told her that you go through life in three phases. Number one, figure out who you are. Number two, figure out where, where you want to be. Oh. And then number three is figure out who you want to come along. Oh. And I was like, at the time, oh my God, that's, how's that going to happen? <laughs> I have no idea. But then I got number one down and it's taken me a while to get number two down, but I feel like number two's, I got it. So then number three will be the next one. But, oh. You know, if you don't do it in that order, it's a little bit trickier because you're still developing. Mm. You, know, you haven't like planted your roots. And that sounds like a recipe for codependent relationships and stuff like that. Yeah, which can be awesome uh, and terrible and everywhere in between. Yeah. Like, uh, you can have one, but you're just more, more vulnerable to the various experiences. But hey, if you're in it to win it, then enjoy. Hmm. They can be so thrilling, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, like, so, uh, and then... I've been playing with this idea of, of chaos versus rigidity in my life. And like last four years, I've had a lot of rigidness and, and like having to do a formal practice and stuff like that. And now it's kind of flowing away and I'm starting to get a lot more chaos. And I think I prefer the chaos. Um, uh, what, how do you deal with this, this is duality of chaos uh, versus rigidity uh, or do you even deal with it? I think that's where the improv comes into play because there's no rigidity in improv. It's just, you're always responding to things as they come. And if you have an ego or an identity, like mm. I have had, then you are no longer, you are rigid. You say, mm. I, can't do, I can't do this. I won't do this. And uh, you know how they say, like, if you're in a car crash or something, you should just like relax. In people, you can survive. If you're too rigid, your bones will break everything. It's the same thing. I mean, if you can't respond, to the changing situation, or if you're not comfortable with the ever, you know, ongoing, you know, change, then it's very difficult. I mean, you could even say the same for companies as well. You know, it's a changing landscape. Things are changing real quick. The company's got to be able to adapt. Adaptability. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that it's like actually something that people are championing. Like that we have to tell each other, hey, we have to be more adaptable because humans used to be the most adaptable creatures ever. We went all over the world. 
mm. and we're constantly foraging for food. I don't know whose genius idea it was. <laughs> sit down and sit down. Crops, but no. <laughs> well, that, uh, that's, that's another thing to go back to the plant thing was that another one person's theory is that the, the plants themselves ca caused their urbanization. It wasn't humans who were like, oh, let's take this plant and then plant it here. And then we're going to grow a little city around this plant and we're going to build the banks and all this different stuff. It was more of a kind of a interaction of the plant with the human. The plant used the human to go make itself more abundant. Um, it implanted it in its brain. I will make yeah. you plant the seeds now. Yeah. <laughs> really? That's kind of interesting. I, yeah. I would believe it. Why not? Yeah, and Yuval Harari, the... Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Sapiens yeah. book, that's right. Thoughts about that. Um, yeah, that's a great book, by the way. Yeah. Where, yeah. Um, where, where can I do Mindful Improv? Is it only in Boulder? Or? Well, um, last, earlier last year, um, I, I put together this online community trying to gather all of the psychologists and therapists and social workers and researchers and coaches and teachers and meditators and yeah. spiritual healers who are all promoting improv in various ways, or at least trying to learn about it. So we've got around 300 people around the world listed on the Mindful Improv website, mindfulimprov.com. And my intention is to, you know, promote the, the brand or the practice, whatever, and say, hey, here are all the people that are around the world. Hopefully there's somebody near you. Hmm. You know, I'm constantly looking for more people to join and build out their directory page, so we'll see. Last year in September, we actually had a conference in Chicago. Hmm. Uh, the Yes and Mental Health Conference, which gathered people from the community together to share what they're working on. Mm. That's very cool. A bunch mm. of therapists doing improv. <laughs> in mm. the mm. What is what has some of the feedback been from people who go through it? Go through what? Go through mindful improv. Yeah. No, I mean it's always great. Every <laughs> almost everybody who's on the website has their own website wow. for their classes, right? And on their website, they usually have reviews from people and it's always the same stuff it's like oh my god i used to be really socially anxious but now i've stepped into a more confident self or i've really learned how to listen it's really helped my relationship so much better you know or i just am more present for my kids now and sort of less stressed about work because i can respond to what's happening but you hear it from people who take a class at a theater you hear it from people who have a therapist and to go through it there you have it from people who are just doing social work like or clinical trials as a student and they've learned it. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, it's funny that people even include reviews in the first place. It's like, it clearly does the same things. Let's just, can we just believe it already and start doing it? That would be great, thanks. Have you tried high mindful improv or ganja mindful improv or? Oh, on weed? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, it, can, it, it, it can work really well and it can also not work really well. The reason why it cannot work really well was because Memory is very important for improv. And if you smoke weed, usually your memory is impaired, which is why you're more likely to be present. But you need to remember in your scene, like what's the character's name? Mm. You know, hey, Sam, how's it going? Oh, what's up, Tim? What's the guy's name again? Oh, Sam, right, yes. So the really best improvisers remember the entire scene. They get up there as like two people huh. and they'll do a long form scene, maybe for like 40 minutes, huh. just made up the entire thing based on a word. The whole thing is completely constructed and they have to remember everything that happens because after like the first half of the show, they basically just start bringing back things from the beginning and reconverging. And that's where the, the great humor is because you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you brought it back. It's like it was scripted. Mm. But that's because they're awake and they're ready and they're listening and they're paying attention. And if you are smoking weed, you 
will forget that you're not even paying attention. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that's actually the reason why a lot of people with PTSD use it. Um, yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, it short circuits that the rumination of the memory um, and changes your the way that short-term memories get processed into long-term memories. So the recurrent re-traumatization that happens with every waking moment then gets short-circuited, basically. Um, yeah, well, it's good. I mean, it can certainly dampen memories like that. Yeah. But... You know, you got to be careful if you're dampening or if you were like trying to cut it out all entirely or if you're just like helping yourself to move through it a little easier. Mm. If you're not moving through it at all. What's the point? I, I mean, yeah. And uh, do you have one book that you find yourself giving to other people as a gift? No. No? What's the one book that you most enjoy right now or... Mm -hmm. Gosh, um, I'm always trying to find different books. They're interesting. I mean, there's no one book that says anything. And honestly, I feel like there are too many books. Yeah. I mean, it's an industry now, like everything. What happens when something becomes an industry is now there's just a push to make more productivity. That's the that's human thing. So now people are wrapping their identities in that they wrote a book. And it's like, great, but there's so many books already. And I had a thing for a while where I refuse to read any kind of spiritual books. My mom actually has a whole collection, but she, she's a business leader. So she's not a spiritual, you know what I mean? Yeah. She's one or the other. And so I never believed any of that stuff and I never wanted to read any, but it didn't resonate. Yeah. And so when I was doing my, my own therapy with a you know, therapist and then also on my own and then with the mindful practice, I refused to read. Mm. And I, I came to some understandings by myself. And then I started to read mm. just to, to verify because now I have a compass I'm like, oh, that's bullshit. That's not, mm. you know, and I was, I was pleased to discover many, many things about that would describe it in ways that I maybe couldn't. That was really great. But then after a while, I actually got frustrated because I started reading like older stuff, like original Buddhist stuff. And it's mm. like, oh my God, it's right there. Mm. Why are we still writing books? It's wrote, it's already written. How many ways do we need to hear it before we believe it? And yeah. the answer is it's never enough. There yeah. will more books yeah. and I too much it, it's too many it's too many things how are you going to get to the real meat of it huh. yeah. my mom thinks I should write a book someday but I'm like I don't want to contribute to the chaos it's like the ocean's already polluted enough okay uh-huh I mean I think if you have something important to say that's not already said somewhere else which I think everything's already been said yeah I don't know because we have we new things are coming on that for example, the rise in technology uh, uh, and the way that it's affecting our, our, the way that humans interact, I think there's a lot of new stuff that has not been. Sure. So, okay. So that's the thing. Yeah. So we write, we write a timely piece, taking uh -huh. those ideas from back then, applying them to yeah. our technology. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to do that, maybe. Mm -hmm. that's a, that would, if that would be something that people would read, there's yeah. plenty of stuff to say about that. Yeah. I think some people would read it, especially, yeah. Uh, I mean, as, yeah. as it starts to change more rapidly. <laughs> I got into all of this mindful stuff ultimately because of what I was doing at Facebook, yeah. which led me on a path away from Facebook. <laughs> uh -huh. So yeah. Yeah, the technology world is its own thing. Yeah. What, what, what about that? If you feel comfortable talking about it or um, I was just, I was studying social design, mm. um, how to make products, digital products that are social. What is, what is social design? Why are we doing this in the first place? I really loved Facebook's design at the time. If you remember back in the day, it had great web design compared to everything else. It was just so clean and so organized. 
And it was social. You found yourself going back to it because people were there and that was the mm. whole thing. And it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And they really wanted to remake the web to be people focused, which was their grand plan, mm. <laughs> which they did, which is mm. so crazy. Um, but I started looking across the board at all of these different social products, Twitter, Pinterest, Spotify, say, you know, what do they all have in common? What's happening? Is there a fundamental rule? That's what I do. That's how I think. Why not? But I was championing it, championing it to developers to help them build apps that work with it. I was like, you can't just use people's information without asking for permission. You know, you got to be careful, but you also got to put faces everywhere and show the connections to things, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But when I was making my talk, I took it really seriously because I've always been fascinated by this stuff. And I, the, the end result of my talk, although it was geared towards developers, ended up saying that the, the connections are the most important thing in a social system, the relationships. And that is because if you look at your relationships over time, you get a narrative and the, the narrative creates your identity, mm. which is what we need in order to fit in mm. and solve the problem of loneliness. Mm. And, um, I will still tell you today, I think it's quite good. Mm. But the difference between me now and then is that I didn't understand that because of that, that the, the identity was an illusion. Mm. I, I was like saying it, but I didn't feel it. I was still very much like, look at me, I'm giving this talk. Mm. On identity. Look how much of an identity I've crafted, even though I just told you that it's not real. Isn't that <laughs> paradoxical? Yeah. So, um, but then I started, then I had some interesting experiences that sort of, sort of opened me up, I suppose, right afterwards. And then I started being like, well, what if these things are true? Then what if I, you know, maybe I should do something about it. Uh, and uh, uh, off I went, uh, like, I have to leave. <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah. cool. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. This is really interesting. I found yeah. I a lot, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. I'm interested to see if you edit it, how it goes. <laughs> and if anybody says anything. Who even knows? But um, seriously, think about coming to visit. I, 